0: starting with verse (coughs) 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Let's pray. Oh Father, your name is to be praised, and Lord, uh, you are not like us. You are good, and you are bounding in loving kindness and compassion. And Father, all things belong to you, Lord, including the events of history. Lord, we praise you for the opportunity to come together and to uh, to worship this morning to receive uh, the teaching and the preaching of your word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to mark <coughs> uh, five hundred years. Since the, the time of the Reformation, Lord, a great time when you restored uh, the, the proper teaching of the gospel uh, thoroughly um, where it had been lacking in the church. Uh, Father, I pray you'd help us to understand better uh, through our study today the context of that Reformation, to understand um, the people uh, in their times and their situations. Father, what was going on, and the fact that you brought these things to pass, you provided the perfect things that were necessary. Uh, To bring about uh, the changes that you wanted to see in your church. And Father, I pray that it would teach us, that it would teach us to worship you as the God of history. Father, that it would teach us to be always reforming, Lord, not to think that um, we've mastered a set of propositional truths or a way of thinking, but Father, to abide in your word uh, and to to entrust ourselves to you uh, because you judge justly. Uh, Father, I pray you'd bless our time and uh, Father, that you'd instruct us and give us joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm Jason Cruz. I'm on staff here, the administrator in the office, and I'm filling in for Matt Scheffler. Um, He is out of town this weekend. He started last week uh, with the first week on the Reformation, and he asked me to teach this week on the context of the Reformation. Last week, he taught about um, two of the major forerunners to the Reformers, uh, John Wycliffe and John Huss. That message is up on the the website if you want to listen to that if you missed it. Um, And he'll return next week, and then for three more weeks. Uh, to lead a more in-depth study on the major character of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther. Um, But today, (coughs) like I said, he asked me to teach the context of the Reformation, um, to give you, or try to give you, kind of an idea of what was going on at the time. Um, You guys have your notes there. Um, First up on your notes, just a little bit of an introduction. Uh, If I get away from the PowerPoint, you guys can feel free to remind me. Uh, you've probably heard it said here more than once uh, with regard to studying the Bible that context is king. And uh, the same can be said of understanding historical events, um, sometimes especially with something like the Reformation where we, we live pretty consistently in light of what happened, at least uh, in a church like ours with a, a, a Reformed en- emphasis on soteriology, uh, just sort of taking for granted um, that this happened uh, kind of the way we live it. Uh, And sort of like it was our context. Um, And and even like it was an overall positive thing for everyone. um, We can disconnect the events and the people uh, from the truths that we've come to appreciate. uh, And how those truths were fought for and won. Um, So just like with scripture, you want to understand what was going on in the lives of the people who wrote the scriptures and the original audience. Um, it's helpful to understand history correctly, to perceive it rightly, and to understand what was going on and how everything developed, uh, to know about the people and their settings and what was going on. You know, and the, We're going to look at the several hundred years uh, leading up to men like Martin Luther uh, and John Calvin. Um, what, what we can do is forget that it was something that occurred among real people in real time um, and, and kind of forget that nobody comes from nowhere. Everyone, everyone has a background. Everyone has a context, and these things developed uh, in that context. Um, and so that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to take it in four parts. Um, part one is much longer than the other three. It's the whole front, uh, is the theology of the late Middle Ages. Uh, we'll spend by far the most time on that, because I think it's probably the most important in terms of understanding how these ideas developed and what they were reaction to. Um, secondly, humanism. Uh, which was something that uh, preceded, uh, its development preceded Martin Luther and John Calvin, but they were very much um, influenced by humanism. So we'll take a look at that. Um, Also, it's not just bad theology um, that the reformers were reacting against uh, and that the people who followed them were reacting against. They were also reacting against uh, church extravagance and immorality. Um, And Matt will focus more on some aspects of that uh, when he talks about Luther. Um, I won't get too much into the discussion of indulgences and everything that they funded, but we'll touch on it briefly. Uh, Fourthly, uh, at the same time, uh, there was the rise of cities and the printing press. And these, you know, all these things together, uh, and this is just one way of sort of categorizing them, they were really major contributors. um, And understanding how they affected the Reformers, how they influenced the Reformers and the men who came just before them uh, is important if we're going to understand kind of where the ideas of the Reformation came from and why they spread the way they did. Um, But before we move on to consider each of these in turn, um, I'll direct your attention back to the subtitle, which was on the first slide, and you see the top of your notes there. Um, (coughs) These are various God-ordained factors. God is the one who is in control of these various factors. uh, And as God always does—oh, yeah, so there was your blank, Uh, God—as God always does, uh, he worked through one decisive factor— And that is his word. Um, So as we consider the other contributing factors uh, that God purposed and used uh, to help bring about the Reformation, these shouldn't in any way detract from our understanding that God ultimately used his word. Uh, The broad restoration of the truth of the gospel uh, is what he used to bring about this important historical shift that we talk about as the Reformation. Uh, And there you have Isaiah 55, verse 11. And this kind of captures... Um, what he did, or at least how he did it. Uh, So my word will be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So we want to kind of strike a balance. We want to understand the reformers and the events of the Reformation uh, in their continuity with uh, the circumstances for people and ideas and thinking. That came before them, but we also want to see that there was something that God did that was uh, extraordinary, uh, and he used his word to do it, the restoration of the accurate teaching of the gospel. So, uh, one question uh, that comes up, at least in my mind, a lot, as um, I think about the history of the church and the development of doctrine. I just bumped that. There we go. Uh, And This is probably a good place to mention uh, one of the resources that uh, Matt directed me to that he's been using as a podcast from uh, um, Carl Truman, who is a professor at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary up north, Uh, and he was actually my professor at Masters last uh, winter for a winter class that I took on the Reformation, Uh, and a lot of the content is the same there to what I studied. Uh, but this was one of his questions, and it's one that comes to me a lot. Um, so I don't think I noted it anywhere on the notes, but if you guys want that podcast link, you can ask me or Matt. One of us, us could get it for you. Um, anyway, uh, his, his question and kind of the way he answered it, um, I thought was pretty good. Uh, the question being, you know, Jesus promised to build his church. And of course, uh, like we saw from Isaiah 55, he's going to do that uh, through his word And so if he's constantly working through his word and he had promised to do that in building the church, where is the true church at these different points, especially sort of the darker times when you don't see a lot of evidence of the accurate teaching of the gospel? Uh, And um, Truman sort of breaks this down in terms of three ways uh, that you can try to look for the true church. The first being follow the trail of blood. Um, Who was losing their lives? Uh, And this can be, Uh, a good way to look for the true church a lot of times if uh, bad teaching was pervasive good teaching would get you killed Um, and so not a bad way but it's also true that there were legitimate heretics that were losing their lives so it's it's maybe a little bit too broad narrowing in a little bit more uh, you can look for the protesters within the church um, who were protesting uh, the church's doctrine and suggesting something that they thought was more biblical And that gets us a little bit closer, but uh, zeroing in even a little bit more, uh, we can look specifically for the theology that was being emphasized and articulated and seek to understand uh, from Scripture and from the consistent teaching of Scripture's truths uh, where we can find threads that kind of go throughout church history. Where is the biblical theology or where is the theology that's being articulated in protest against what's being taught wrong? where is it correct, and the more common teaching is wrong along the way. And that's where you're going to really see, you're really going to zero in and say, here was the true church, and you'll see evidence that by his word, which will not return void along the way, God has always been, Christ has always been building his church. Now, before we get to looking for those emphases along the way, um, I want to sort of... um, paint a picture of what the theological situation was uh, in the late middle ages uh, and in order to understand that um, Thomas Aquinas is a key figure uh, to understand uh, and you see he was, uh, what is this at least 200 years before the reformers, a little bit more uh, and and this was a major figure, he was a major figure in the catholic church, by the 16th century the time of the reformers uh, his work summa Theologica. Theologi, or Summa Theologica, uh, had become the authoritative standard for for theological training in the Roman Catholic Church. If you went to seminary, you studied uh, Aquinas. Uh, He kind of, um, he was brilliant. He he kind of uh, controlled the lay of the land theologically for the Catholic Church uh, by the time of the Reformers. Uh, And to help you understand what he taught uh, and how it kind of formed the context for late medieval theology... Um, And this wasn't entirely new. Uh, Allegorical hermeneutics um, had been around for quite some time. Um, You know, in the church really since just about the beginning. Um, And part of that is thanks to a Jewish um, philosopher, teacher named Philo uh, in the first century who was also a Platonist. (coughs) He subscribed to the ideas of Plato, Platonic dualism in particular. And he wanted to make Platonism fit the Old Testament scriptures. He was a, he was Jewish, so he wasn't concerned with it fitting the New Testament scriptures. But the way he did that was he would assign more than one level of meaning to the text. And where he wanted to make Platonism fit, and it didn't fit with the literal interpretation of the text, he would find another, uh, like an allegorical level on which to understand the text and make philosophy fit, make Plato's philosophy fit with what the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, taught. Um, Oh, I think, uh, there we go. So there was allegorical hermeneutics that had a long history in the church, uh, and, and even the reformers didn't get away from that entirely, although they did push back against it very successfully uh, uh, and freed um, the teaching of the scriptures and the reading of the scriptures uh, to, to a great extent from those allegorical hermeneutics that had been um, consistent in the church for a long time or, or present in the church for a long time. Uh, and by the way, hermeneutics, I didn't define that term, uh, is basically just the study of how you interpret or understand scripture. Um, and, and we teach here, and the church teaches, uh, the Protestant church, that uh, hermeneutics properly are historical, uh, that the scriptures speak of historical events as truly historical, they were things that really happened. Uh, grammatical, the, the meaning of a scripture text can be perceived in the grammar of the words, themselves, uh, and then uh, literal is that th- that the understood the proper understanding of the scriptures according to what the author originally intended. Um, so historical, grammatical, and literal, as opposed to allegorical, which is like a spiritual interpretation, uh, making things that shouldn't be seen as symbolic uh, to be symbolic, uh, and then sort of making scripture by that kind of fit your preferences. and And so what we see in the theologians of the middle ages and going all the way back to early church fathers in some respects although not as thoroughly uh, is sort of a synthesizing of um, philosophy and what the bible teaches by using this flexible way of understanding scripture making it fit (coughs) Uh, now the other aspect of the note up there a recovery of aristotle Uh, the the early church Uh, The early church fathers, Philo, um, had preferred Plato over Aristotle um, in terms of Greek philosophers. Uh, And um, for that reason, Plato had not very much been translated into Latin. I'm sorry, Aristotle had not. And most people in the West did not understand Greek. So the fact that Aristotle's work was mostly in Greek... And I think there was one Latin translation, but it wasn't very widely available. Um, Not very many people in the West had been exposed to Aristotle. And uh, as we'll see when we get into humanism uh, as a component of the context of the Reformation, uh, there was kind of a return to classical texts and studying them in their original languages. And between that and the fact that uh, Latin translations of Aristotle became more widely available, there was this recovery in the west of aristotle's ideas and so a church that was already or you know theological students within the church that were already uh sort of predisposed to synthesizing or to a synthesis of philosophy with um theology uh latched on to aristotle and that's what aquinas did and and really he's the seminal character Um, he's the one who really got into Aristotle and worked to combine Aristotelian thinking using allegorical hermeneutics uh, with theology. And so you have this, and and the way it's referred to, um, and there will be some technical terms throughout here in terms of trying to establish the philosophy and the theology of the Middle Ages, it's not important that you understand uh, what all of those terms mean, just that you see uh, a little bit about what these guys were doing and what it created in terms of the theology that was um, popular in the church and then against which the reformers responded. And, and we'll go through some ways in which they responded. Um. <coughs> anyway, I was about to say that Thomistic, you know, Thomas's um, combination of Aristotle and theology uh One of the major components of that is like it's a a metaphysic. Uh, It's a way of understanding reality that really is contrary to the scriptures, but it's a way of reasoning uh, to God and being independent. um, And I'm getting a little ahead of the points here. uh, Right there. He made a hard distinction, a hard distinction between nature and grace, um, which doesn't sound like a bad thing. I mean, we do see a distinction between The natural realm and the spiritual realm but he took it to an extreme that separated the exercise of human reasoning from faith Uh, and and the implication of that was he basically said that you could reason to God apart from scripture Uh, and so what this had the effect of doing was making human reasoning supreme, lifted human reasoning over the scriptures Um, and so that by and large, is what the Reformers were reacting against. Their return to Sola Scriptura, you know, you need to understand the truth about God and his world, um, like Calvin would say, through the spectacles of Scripture. We need God's Word to tell us about God and about Christ, specifically. Uh, we cannot reason to these things. Um, and, and, you know, there were some good impulses in Aquinas. Um, he wanted to protect... The spiritual side from the the human reasoning side, Um, but what it did is it made it so that those two were too separate. Um, What he wanted to do was protect the transcendence of God, so he would use analogies, you know, look at things that you could see, and then say by analogy we can understand something about God. But but really, in the end, it just overly exalted uh, human reasoning and made it so that it sat over. Uh, the scriptures. Um, Let's see. Yeah, so autonomous human reasoning, including reasoning to God by analogy, uh, reigned supreme. And this was true in the 13th century with Aquinas and then following. This was really pervasive uh, by the time of the reformers, the standard theological teaching. Uh, Now this guy goes back over a thousand years. Uh, Augustine, of Hippo, um, and and we really prize Augustine and his teaching, and so did the form the reformers. Calvin um, said that he saw him as a means by which the living source could once once more be reached. Um, so here's here's a way in which we tend to maybe misconceive a little bit. We might think that Augustine was completely lost to the church, um, and that really wasn't true. Aquinas considered himself an Augustinian. And uh, most of the church, you know, those who were studying Summa Summa Theologica at the time would have considered themselves to be Augustinian. Um, Yeah, so there on your notes, they would have mostly in the Middle Ages thought of Augustine as a good guy. But here we're looking for the sort of strain of the correct teaching in the church. Uh, there were very few who were accepting uh, Augustine's sort of predestinarian and anti-Pelagian theology. Uh, but there were some guys um, not too far off from the time of Aquinas and, and coming in between Aquinas uh, and the Reformers, uh, who had discovered and championed uh, this biblical truth, the, these aspects of Augustine's teaching uh, during this time. Uh, the first one I'll mention here is Thomas Bradwardine, and you see there uh, the dates. Um, He was 1290 to 1349, Uh, so again, not too far off from the time of Aquinas. Um, What you see here is uh, an example of a cover page from one of his works, uh, Contra Pelagius. So he was definitely emphasizing uh, that aspect of Augustine's teaching, which was not in thorough acceptance. In the church at that time, uh, and a couple of quotes, um, oh, contra Pelagius. A couple of quotes from him. Uh, first, "What multitudes, O Lord, do this day join hands with Pelagius in contending for free will and fighting free grace?" Yeah. Uh, and then another one for him. And then you know, just see how these really we could be saying these things, or the reformers. And this was back in the 13th century. So there is that sort of uh, thread you can follow of Christ building his church uh, and making these truths known, even if not across the whole church at the time. Uh, So this, again, from Bradwardine. Who is not struck with awe in beholding thy all-powerful will completely efficacious throughout every part of the creation? It is by this same sovereign and irresistible will that whom and when thou pleasest, thou bringest low and liftest up, killest and makest alive. How intense and how unbounded is thy love to me, O Lord, whereas my love, how feeble and remiss. So you can imagine how contrary this would have been to the Catholic thinking of the time. I mean, everyone was Catholic, but to the common thinking of the time. My gratitude, how cold and inconstant. Far be it from thee that thy love could even resemble mine, for in every kind of excellence thou art consummate. Uh, Another figure, um, about the same time, Gregory of Rimini, Uh, and a quote from him, there could scarcely be more remarkable testimony to the state of thought, I'm sorry, this is not Rimini, but uh, about him. Uh, There could scarcely be more remarkable testimony to the state of thought in the earlier 14th century uh, than Gregory's commentary, uh, we are presented, in effect, with a transposition of Saint Augustine's teaching to the age of Occam. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about Occam. But Occam is uh, someone who was pretty much contemporaneous with L- Luther, a little bit preceded him. Uh, it is as an Augustinian in the literal sense. So that particular emphasis, that faithful emphasis uh, from Augustine, of owing the essentials of his outlook to Saint Augustine rather than to the 13th century Augustinians, that Gregory must be regarded. Um, so Gregory is another example with Bradwardine of uh, emphasizing the predestinarian and anti-Pelagian, um, kind of the, um, the idea that man isn't good in himself to save himself. When I say anti-Pelagian, that was what Pelagius taught, was that man was good in himself to save himself. His, um, his will was decisive. Man's will was decisive in salvation. God's grace needed man's will. Uh, in order to act. And of course, these quotes about and from these men in the 13th century uh, are in direct opposition to that. They're anti-Pelagian. And uh, again, about him, um, this one from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And a lot of these guys were philosophers and theologians. Um, And yeah, this is maybe a little bit abstract, but uh, in short, there is no reason either for one person's salvation or for another person's damnation, uh, except the inscrutable will of God. We do not know why some are saved and others damned. Uh, this, after all, Gregory believed was the theory of Paul and of Augustine. So, you know, Stanford Encyclopedia is saying it was the theory of Paul. You know, but the truth that this points to is that uh, Gregory didn't just see himself as a student of Augustine. And the same thing is going to be true of Luther and Calvin. They see themselves as... Students of Paul, and I think did Matt have a quote last week, um, Luther saying about uh, was it Huss? You don't don't call me a Hussite; call me Pauline. You know that was that was a concern of theirs that they weren't to be seen as just recovering the early fathers; they were recovering the teaching of the Scriptures themselves. You know, the the idea of sola scriptura. Um, so just back to the word of caution: we want to be. Balanced in terms of kind of like I was just pointing out um, The reformers didn't trade in one human philosophy for another Um, We do want to see what human philosophies and thinking were occasioning and informing uh, What the philosopher what the uh, reformers did Um, But again, we want to see it as being the result of a recovery of God's Word uh, more than or at least using uh, these other factors Um, So, uh, the first point in this is Luther was not a nominalist or a voluntarist. Uh, And uh, just to give you some background on that, I'll explain those terms a little bit. Um, But when I was in class with Truman in the winter last year, uh, one of the things he said really piqued my curiosity, and that is it's become a popular thing to basically say Luther, you know, thought he was doing sola scriptura, but in fact he was just trading in an inferior philosophy um or a, a superior philosophy they would say aristotelian logic for inferior philosophy nominalism and voluntarism, uh, and and that piqued my curiosity enough that i wrote a research paper on it so um i tried to distill that a little bit uh, to explain that that we shouldn't see it that way uh, similarly with kelvin we'll see in the next slide um, these guys had uh, some influences and there was some thinking, you know, debates going on philosophically at the time, and they benefited from it, I think, to some extent. Uh, but it wasn't decisive. You know, it may have helped to tear down strongholds, so to speak, um, but what was decisive, again, was God's Word. Um, and we'll see. Luther rejected um, nominalists, uh, where he thought that they disagreed with Scripture. Uh, and to give you a little uh, feel for what nominalism is all about, um, it was a reaction to, to Aquinas's metaphysics uh, with its autonomy of reason. Um, it kept the autonomy of reason, but restricted it to that which is empirically verifiable. So that which can be touched or seen um, was the only thing you could reason about. Um, it denied the existence of universals. Uh, an example of this would be, you know, I could say... Uh, Jim exists but mankind doesn't exist the universal mankind doesn't exist only particulars exist and don't worry about getting your head around that it's just something that Luther talked about in his writings Um, uh, an example of that uh, let's see where did he say it so he, he would write a lot of things like the 95 Theses. One was called uh, the Heidelberg uh, Disputation. And Thesis 32 of the Heidelberg er, um, Disputation uh, Luther wrote, after the proposition that there is many material forms as there are created things has been accepted it was necessary to accept that they are all material. So again, these guys weren't just theologians, they were philosophers and they were philosophizing. So um, historians will look at a statement like that and say, oh look, Luther was a nominalist, and his ideas come from nominalism. But then you have something like the uh, quote you see up here, and I don't think I reproduced that on your notes, Um, but uh, uh, Occam was of the school of thought that influenced Luther, and you see that in the quote here. He had absorbed completely the school of Occam. but he says at the beginning there, I demand arguments, and by this he means biblical arguments, not authorities he didn 't see anything as authoritative other than arguments that come from the scriptures. That is why I contradict even my own school of alchemists, which I have absorbed completely um, so there's and there's there's more than that. Let me see. do I have another one here? I guess that 's the only one there um, that 's enough about nominalism I think volunteerism um, Similarly, a response to Aquinas, um, who had emphasized the intellect over the will, um, and volunteerism emphasized the will over the intellect. So it was probably, I mean, for one thing, it was reasoning. It was not scripture. And it was probably an overreaction. Um, it was led by a man named Dun Scotus. Um, uh, and students of volunteerism were Occam again, and a really influential guy on Luther who is Gabrielle Beale. Uh, And just sort of to explain where uh, some of the reasoning could be in thinking that Luther was a voluntarist, um, emphasizing the, the will over the intellect, it could help or it could be seen to help with the justification by faith alone doctrine. Because rather than just intellectually recognizing a man as righteous, which would be more Catholicism, Uh, God could have willed it to be so. Uh, So it could lend itself to that. But with Luther, um, those two things weren't so distinct. In Christ, the man is made righteous. And so there is will and intellect on God's part in terms of bringing that about. Uh, So again, Luther would not be a voluntarist, strictly speaking. His thinking is going to come from the Bible. And again here in, what is this one from? the disputation against scholastic theology. So, you know, Luther would write things like this and they'd be like bullet points, you know, just one after another after another. And here's one, one must concede that the will is not free to strive toward whatever is declared good. This is in opposition to Scotus and Gabrielle. So historians can look and they can find things that they think indicate um, Luther was one of these things rather than biblical, but we can use the same, you know, documents and find where he disavowed the things that were supposedly his controlling influence and just relentlessly emphasized his controlling influence was scripture Uh, so luther was not a nominalist or a voluntist voluntarist i would say he was a biblicist Um, he he got his uh, authority from scripture Uh, with calvin uh, the charge would be that he was a platonist or a stoic Um, and and that heritage of Platonism, again, would come from the early fathers, Um, and Calvin was closer to the earlier fathers in some ways, probably, than than Luther, Um, not in terms of time, but in terms of uh, theological heritage, Um, and prior to his conversion to Protestantism, he was a student of Plato. Uh, He was also part of the School of the Humanists uh, in Paris, Uh, and his first major work and this was before he converted to Protestantism, was a commentary on uh, Seneca's De Clementia, which is a um, Stoic work. So there are evidences of Stoicism and Platonism, and Calvin wittingly used Plato. Uh, He thought Plato's dualism, similar to how the early church fathers thought, uh, could explain uh, the good and the spiritual versus the material and the evil. Um, so he, he really thought he was using Platonism, taking every thought captive to Christ, so to speak, using it in service of teaching biblical truth. Um, we would disagree with that uh, and think that it's sort of a corruption of Calvin's theology. But again, we have to take these guys in their context. And this was so common. And he was inheriting this from early church fathers. It is understandable. And he was also relentlessly biblical. Um, yeah, he believed uh, that the Bible must serve as the final test of any truth proposition, including his own. And he would say things like that. He wasn't as uh, talkative about himself uh, in his writings nearly as much as Luther was. So those quotes that I could find from Luther really easily, Calvin, his writings are you know, commentaries on scripture and um, uh, you know, his sermons. Uh, in his institutes. It wasn't personal, like, this is my view. There wasn't uh, as nearly as much of that as there was with Luther. But there is enough to discern these things, um, including that uh, quote earlier that he saw Augustine as a means by which the living source could once, once more be reached. Um, we have my sister and her husband <coughs> staying with me, and he's been studying Calvin. And uh, he made a point that uh, I think is worth making. A lot of times we, we look at Calvin for his system, or tulip uh, and which is not actually from Calvin, uh, it's from uh, the later uh, the Canons of Dort. Is that where tulip comes from? And we think of that as Calvinism. Uh, but really, for Calvin, like for Luther, uh, Christ was central. You know, re- re- regaining, re- recapturing for the church uh, the center of the gospel, uh, and that was what Calvin's work was committed to, and even his use. Of other sources, he liked Chrysostom uh, from the early church, Chrysostom, for the uh, exposition. His example as an expositor of God's word. You know, and even if he would use, and he, I mean, Augustine obviously is a great choice for for recapturing Paul's theology, learning from Augustine, and even if he would use uh, Plato, um, it would be used in Calvin's mind to that end, uh, not to be a Platonist, but to explain something that's true uh, from the scriptures. 2 uh, Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, really, I think, captures what the uh, reformers saw themselves doing with relationship to the theology and the thinking uh, on which they built or which they tore down. Uh, and it reads from Paul, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So they were destroying strongholds, um, using all their resources and what the Bible teaches uh, to, to tear down what they saw as unbiblical, and then using those things, even, even some of the thinking uh, that they were benefiting from, developments in thought, uh, to take those thoughts captive for the obedience of Christ. Turning to the back of your page there, um, humanism was a key factor. Um, our second key factor here, uh, and these obviously we won't spend nearly as long on. Um, but a few things I want to emphasize within uh, this factor of humanism. <coughs> uh, one is we could easily confuse it with what we know of as humanism in our modern context. Um, sort of uh, optimistic atheists, um, guys who see their have their hope in human potential. That's how we use humanist now. Uh, But this humanism um, was not that. It was kind of a a return to the classics. Um, The humanists in the 15th and 16th centuries were the public intellectuals of their day, and they had had really built a foundation of thinking. They had built a worldview on the works of the classics uh, from from, uh, closer to the um, time of Christ and even before. Uh, what, what, what precipitated or brought about humanism, um, it, it started in that sense uh, as early as the 13th century uh, with the building of Italian city-states. So it kind of coincided with the beginning of the rise of cities. <coughs> and these were you know major power centers. Um, and for a power center, it's good to have uh, an identity and even an established identity. Um, if you think about our country, this is kind of like our calendar. where you can see our identity through uh, the 4th of July, uh, Memorial Day, Labor Day, Thanksgiving, Martin Luther King Day. You know, these things sort of tell you our history and our sense of identity. Well, the humanists wanted to go back to Rome, to the classical era, uh, to find the identity. And of course, being Italian city-states, that was their proud heritage. So they wanted to establish, and and going along with this new rise of power, establish this um, sort of historical foundation for for who they were and why they should lead, why they should have these centers of power. (coughs) And what this produced uh, can be called ad fontes, uh, which is Latin for to the founts. (coughs) They were looking to return uh, the tradition of scholarship uh, back to the glories of the classical era uh, in order to build that identity for the present. Um, The desire this desire for historical roots led to a love for the classics. Uh, this, led, this love for the classics led to a body of literature uh, devoted to the careful study of ancient texts uh, in their original languages. Uh, it also cast the Middle Ages in a bad light. Uh, they wanted to show themselves as being great and the true heirs of the greatness that had come a long time ago. And so they wanted to show what it immediately preceded as being miserable and bad. So, so in some respects, when we think of Middle Ages as being really bad, and in some ways it was, some of that is propaganda from the humanists of the 16th century. pretty effective. <coughs> um, <coughs> so again, God was bringing all these things about. And of course, one of the things that he was bringing about and that was really key to the Reformation was the restoration of the study of ancient texts in their original languages and this would have included the study of the Old and New Testaments in their original languages. And something that's probably familiar is the key role played by the uh, difference between the Latin eustificare, for justification, which means to make righteous in Latin, and the Greek, dikayasune, which means to declare righteous. And when Erasmus produced his Greek New Testament um, with critical apparatus, which would have preceded Luther by maybe, not very long, maybe within about 50 years, Uh, and Luther got a hold of that Greek New Testament, that was revelatory for him. And I think we'll hear something about that from Dan this morning as he preaches on justification by faith alone. Uh, So I won't preempt that, not that we have any time anyway. But... um, (coughs) That restoration of the study of ancient texts is what God used uh, in a lot of ways to restore the true gospel to the church. And there again, it's not just um, the thinking influences that led to what the reformers did. It was the word of God and restoring the word of God as properly understood biblically. That That was the fabric of the hearts of these reformers. Uh, God also used humanism um, in this respect. The humanists wanted to free philosophy from theology. And I kind of ran across this as I was doing my research papers last winter. Uh, It wasn't just the Reformation that wanted to disconnect the two. It was the humanists. They felt like theology had corrupted Plato and Aristotle, which is interesting. I mean, it's like, who cares? (laughs) But... That, that helped kind of, they were another voice saying, you know, this synthesis is a corruption. And the reformers on the other side were saying, yes, this synthesis is a corruption. We need to separate these. Uh, finally, you may have heard the quote, uh, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched. And that um, sort of explanation of his Greek New Testament uh, is explanatory of that. So you have the theology of the late Middle Ages combining with uh, the work of the humanists to lead in the direction of the ideas of the Reformation. Um, And some of that, of course, is a reaction against bad theology, uh, but as I mentioned at the start, uh, it wasn't just a reaction against bad theology. It was also um, uh, a reaction against uh, bad morals, um, church extravagance, and immorality, and and. As we understand from the scriptures and from experience, bad theology goes with bad morals. And and really just plain confusion. Um, And I think Matt mentioned last week, I'm taking historical theology right now. And so I can't remember what Matt said and what I got from my professor. But I think he talked about the fact that there were multiple popes uh, at various points between 1378 and 1478. uh, And this really uh, did a lot, helped to remove people's confidence in the papacy you know, really called into question that claim of absolute authority. And, and that's an important uh, thing to, to get, I think, is the, is the fact that the Reformers weren't just recovering propositional truth. This was, as much as anything, a question of where authority lies. And where the Reformers came down, as I've mentioned more than once, is the authority is with Scripture, not with teachers, not with popes, not with men. So there was uh, corrupt authority, and it was um, (coughs) manifested uh, in rampant sexual immorality uh, among the clergy. Um, The rules for celibacy for priests uh, were maintained officially, but were routinely broken, and everyone knew that. I think Matt touched on that last week, and especially among thinkers, um, this really removed any respect uh, for the the leadership in the, the Roman church. Um, and also there was just financial corruption. And Matt will get more into this when he teaches on uh, Tetzel and uh, indulgences, I think, probably next week. Um, I think he mentioned also simony, the practice of buying uh, church offices uh, in in order to profit from them. Um, uh, And then just ornate and luxurious palaces and church buildings that were being built. Um, When Luther visited Rome... Uh, he saw he saw the building site for St. Peter's. Uh, it wasn't done yet. and That was why Tetzel was out collecting indulgences or um, selling indulgences. Uh, but it was under construction. Uh, and, and Luther just was disillusioned with the immorality and the extravagance. Um, he's supposed to have said, if there is a hell, then Rome is built over it. Uh, it was just really uh, striking. And especially, you'd see, I mean, those are just some... Internet pictures of examples of what things would have looked like for the commoners, uh, men like Luther uh, at that time. So to see the extravagance. And, and also, you know, something that we can often forget is, is um, you know, what else was happening uh, in terms of arts and humanities uh, at the same time. This was the period of Michelangelo, and that's his uh, Pieta, which is in the Vatican, and the um, uh, Sistine Chapel ceiling painted by Michelangelo. Um, these guys were being paid for uh, on the backs of the peasants and so you know, I, I was talking to my wife not too long ago about being careful how we teach the value of the arts um, not to say the arts aren't uh, worth studying but um, teach them in their context don't forget that they were connected to these events and uh, that, that in some senses their production represented uh, a lot of corruption uh, those those things probably shouldn't have been together <coughs> Uh, So there were theological developments, there was humanism, um, there was the response against uh, the church's leadership's immorality, uh, and there was the rise of cities and the printing press. Um, And and I think we know this from experience, again, um, but the people, the way people live their lives is determined uh, to a pretty significant extent by social and economic conditions, And this was a time of major shifts, major changes in social and economic uh, conditions. And just some things we take for granted. Um, For people who lived before the printing press, uh, it was hard for them to get a hold of cheap books. Uh, And if you couldn't get a hold of cheap books, then reading wasn't really an option. Um, So think about how integral scripture reading is to your personal walk with the Lord and to your family's walk with the Lord. And just remember that that was not something that, for even most of the, I mean, most of the history of the church was up to and including this time. And so that was not something that they had, and they're about to get it. And so that's a huge shift. And again, the Lord's provision uh, for these things to take off. Uh, the rise of cities came at this time, um, as I mentioned a little bit with the, the start of the Italian city-states in the 14th century. Um, and together with the rise of trade and the rise of the sort of precursors to incus- industrial production, things like book printing and basket weaving. So those things were, production was starting to go on in cities, and there was a shift from rural living to living in the city. Um, growing up before this, like in the 13th century, you probably would have been a peasant farmer, uh, if that. Um, like your parents before you and their parents before them. Uh, there wasn't really any getting out of that. Um, but now, um, this shift from rural uh, to city life uh, would have really changed the rhythm of work. Um, the rhythm of work would have been set around the seasons, you know, harvest and planting uh, and all those things. And this allowed it to change to more of a, a work week um, that would accommodate a Sabbath, uh, a Sunday. And so you see Sabbatarianism um, rise up with the Protestants. Um, Uh, exposure to other people other ideas increased you know before you would have just stayed in your country town you probably would have met the person you married when you were five Um, you know just because everyone was there together new ideas just did not spread quickly Um, there was uh, increasing anonymity because people could move to cities Uh, and so free thought was more of an option Uh, you weren't just beholden to you know what your what your family or your your um, small community would think, um, and with the printing press, basket weaving, sources of of employment in the city came up that were not dependent on weather. Um, these were consistent jobs. Um, so things were changing a lot, uh, but the church hadn't changed. And and here uh, it's important for us to see sort of the the commoners in their relationship to the to the Reformation um, change all of this change going on, change is hard. And it wasn't always a positive thing that someone was coming in and trying to say, okay, off with your religion too. That's going to change also. Um, So where there were pockets of resistance it can be kind of um, understandable, still wrong. You know, the biblical truths should win out. um, But there's an understandable mentality uh, among the peasants. A lot was changing at this time. Uh, With the printing press... Um, just the the opportunity for the spread of information. Uh, for the first time in history, it became possible to form public opinion. You could just get an idea disseminated through the printing press um, so much faster uh, than you could previously. I mean, you think about like you know later in in history, like Hitler uh, and others have have tried to gather all the books together to burn. That's because that medium made it possible for ideas to spread, and they wanted to control that. Um, So we think of the internet as being a major gain in that respect, but in some ways the internet just kind of made even vaster and faster what was already put in place by the printing press. That was a a huge thing. Um, It's also true that uh, the printing uh, press operators were, were young guys. Uh, you know, early adopters of technology and they were favorable to kind of radical ideas. And so the reformers had no trouble getting their ideas printed and spread quickly um, in part because the printing press operators uh, were kind of edgy uh, in that way. So again uh, uh, provision from the Lord for uh, the ideas of the Reformation uh, to, to spread quickly. So Closing just in time, I think. Praise God for the provisions he made for the Reformation. You know, the, the reaction against the corruption of theology. Um, uh, the fact that there were faithful men along the way who had maintained and taught the truth. And the Reformers benefited from that strain of good theology uh, having existed, um, even though it was a small minority. Uh, bringing about humanism, uh, the, the study of the original languages that came for that, from that. And, and even, you know, Genesis 50 comes to mind. They intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Um, that corruption in the church provided an occasion, even for the peasants who might have been hesitant to see change all happening at once, they could react against the corruption because it was being done on their backs. Uh, and then how he used the rise of cities and the printing press uh, to contribute also. Uh, let 's pray, and then is there anyone to make announcements? I think, oh no, Matt 's out of town. So look at your bulletins. <laughs> All right, let 's pray, and we 'll be dismissed. Father.